And so Paul's been over and over again trying to kind of reveal to his national heritage, his own brothers and sisters of Israel, hey, here is what God is doing. He's alive and at work. And just because Israel has rejected Jesus as the Messiah doesn't mean that God's forgotten them and doesn't mean that God's promises aren't true. As a matter of fact, we're seeing prophecy fulfilled in everything that's taking place. That Israel's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah was actually prophesied about. That Roman citizens and those in the Gentile Greek world coming to know God through Jesus as their Lord and Savior was actually prophesied about. And that everything that is unfolding is a testimony to God's faithfulness and his goodness, not God's lack of willingness to help his people and continue to love them. That he had not abandoned Israel, but he was actually doing what he promised he would do in his word. And he says that he sees their rebellion towards God and the ways in which they're acting as an opportunity for them to continue to understand that God's mercy is still available to them. And one of the things he had even shown throughout the course of Romans 9 and and Romans 10 was, hey, God has not changed the way in which he operates and loves on the human race. That God from the outset has been choosing to show mercy and extend grace to people all the way back to Abraham. That God chose Abraham out of all the people in the world that he could have chosen in that particular given and season of human history. That God chose Isaac instead of Ishmael as the the seed of the promise to the nation of Israel. That God chose Jacob instead of Esau as the seed of that promise. And that God continues to kind of operate and show this because of his sovereignty. And that even now in this time, in this season that Paul is living in, that he is saving Gentile, Romans, and Greeks, and those in the regions of northern Africa, and moving into even Spain, and heading throughout all of Europe, and then moving east as well, that, that God is saving just as he had promised in the book of Hosea. Right? If you look at Romans chapter 9, verse 25, look at what he says. He says in verse 25 this. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who has not, was not beloved, I will call beloved. Meaning, there will be people that did not know the God of the Bible as their God. And then God will save them and they will start to follow him and know him as creator and king because of Jesus. And that all of this is coming to pass. And yet Israel, and Paul knows this, is going to push back on everything that Paul is saying. Because they have a problem with it. Because see, what, what happened is, is when Christ showed up on the scene and was crucified, dead, and rose again, that not only did our ability to know God become fully realized, but the Jewish religious and political structure was turned upside down on its head. And that much of their understanding of how we relate with God and know God was completely eliminated. And their pushback is, hey, look, we as Israel, we were God's chosen people. What do you you mean we're saved by faith? What about the law? What What about following the Mosaic Covenant? 
What about our performance and how our blessing or curse hinged upon that performance? And Paul's response, you can see it in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, right? Look at that with me. He says, for Christ is the end of the law, not in general, but the end of the law for what? For righteousness to everyone who believes. Meaning, no one is declared not guilty of their sin based upon their performance towards the law. It is only in Christ that someone can be declared not guilty. And then he explains the, the rest of this response in verse 9 in chapter 10. Go there with me, right? He says this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Basically saying, look, right, God has saved through Christ, and yet there is the responsibility of human beings to respond to that good news through repentance and faith by trusting in the work of Christ and confessing Jesus as Savior and King. There is no one that will spend eternity in heaven, and I'm here to tell you that, guys, this is, this is a fundamental truth that we need to understand. There is no one that will spend eternity in heaven if they have not trusted that Jesus' work on the cross and his life, death, burial, and resurrection is sufficient to save them. They have to believe in that, but they also must confess Jesus as Lord and King. As I said last week, there's a tendency for us to be okay with Jesus the Savior, but not okay with Jesus the King. And Paul is saying, look, no one responds to God. No one knows Jesus and becomes a disciple of Christ unless they both believe in the sufficiency of what Christ did, but also confess him as their Lord and Savior. And Paul's saying, look, okay, look, so, so the end of the law for righteousness is here, but is only in Christ by confessing him as Lord and trusting in his work. And then he lays out this super encouraging statement in verse 13. Look at what he said. This is what we looked at last week. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, what? Will be saved. He doesn't say might be saved. He doesn't say, God will think about it if you've been good enough or if you've, done, if you've followed me or done, done what I want you to do. No. If you call upon Christ and confess him as Lord and believe in his finished work on the cross, what's true of you? You're saved. Everything someone needs for righteousness is wrapped up in Christ. Not in your own performance, but solely in the work of Jesus. And on that basis, both Jew and Gentile are saved and know the God of the Bible as dad. That's what Paul has been saying up to this point, that you, you know God as father because you were adopted as sons and daughters of God. On the basis of God's mercy to us in Christ, not our performance. And so this morning, here's what, here is what Paul is going to finish up by saying. He's been, saying, he's been trying to get across to Israel and really to his Roman audience as well. God is sovereign in saving you, but you still do have to respond. Right? He's, not taking, he's not making us robotic in the way that we live our lives. Some, some people would become so fatalistic in what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 9 and 10 that they would think that we could just sit back and never do anything, never respond, never pray, never share our faith, never be involved in the local church, n- never care about holiness, that we could just sit back and not do anything because God is sovereign. 
And Paul is saying, yes, God is sovereign, but man still has a responsibility to follow Jesus, to respond to Jesus. And some of you guys are sitting in your chair like, I don't really understand this. This is, this is, uh, this is already hurting me philosophically in my brain. I can't figure this out. That, but let me just say this to you guys because this is, this is how you know that you have a problem. You need to know everything. It's a control problem. It's something we as human beings struggle with. And when we start thinking about an infinite God who created and set the universe in motion and made everything that we see with our eyes, including even scientific laws that we observe to be true, when there's something we don't understand, we push back on it. I'm here to tell you guys that if God is really God, not being able to fully know him is a good thing. If you are able to fully know God, guess what that makes you? God. I hate to break it to you. I love a lot of you guys in this room. I know you well. I don't really want you to be God. I just don't. My wife will tell you very quickly, she does not want me to be God. Right? She, she, Jackie sees me at my best, but she also sees me at my worst. And yet the promises that we have in Scripture is a God who never fails, a God who keeps his promise, a God who is holy, a God who is righteous, a God who is just, and a God who is good. And we can follow him and trust him because guess what? He's not like you and I. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're higher than our thoughts. And so as we're sitting here seeing this, as God is saying, look, there is a foundational truth that God is sovereign in all things, and yet you and I still have a responsibility to respond, we can look at that and say, okay. We can argue you know, over little pieces here and there of exactly what the implications of that might be, but overall, let's just take Scripture at face value and follow it. Because God's bigger than we are. And when we get to this last part of Romans chapter 10, Paul's going to be saying, look, okay, I've told you all this is, is, is true. And the goodness of God and what he has done for us. And that if anyone calls upon the name of the Lord, they're saved. How is that going to become a reality? How, how can we know that that's going to become a reality in the midst of God's sovereignty? And yet, the reality that many people don't even know him. How are all of these people going to call on the name of the Lord if they didn't grow up Jewish? And the Jews themselves are refusing to trust Christ as the Messiah. How is this going to happen? So look at verses 14 through 17 with me in Romans chapter 10. Paul says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So, so Paul asks this question. He says this, right? How, how can anyone call on the name of the Lord? How is this going to play out? Israel is the one that knows God. They were given the promises. They're the, one that know, they're the ones that know all these things about God, or at least they should, according to Paul. How, how is this going to play out then if the Jews are rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, and there's no temple in the Gentile world, there's no synagogue, there's no traditions, there's no holy teachers, there's no holy days to observe, there's no Sabbath or years of knowing and understanding the Talmud of the Torah, how is this going to happen? And Paul's going to respond by asking these three rhetorical questions that we just read and answering them. But what he's actually going to be doing is turning it back on Israel and their unbelief in Jesus to this point. But look, look at the first question he says. How will they call on God? You know, basically he's saying this, right? 
Gentiles don't know who the God of the Bible is. How are they going to call on him if they don't even know who he is? Right? You can't exactly call someone by name and call on them and believe in them if you have no idea they even exist. Right? It's, one, it's one thing to deny God and deny the gospel. It's another thing to not even know God exists. And their pushback on this is, look, the Gentiles don't even know who God is. And, and at the same time, right, how are the Jews going to call on the name of Christ if they've rejected him as the Messiah? And, 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 and Paul is bringing up something interesting that we need to think about. If you're a follower of Jesus in here this morning, that we need to think about, and that's this. Facts and revelation matter. Right? If, if faith is not some sort of mystical experience that, that, that while it can be experienced, experience does not replace what we would consider to be true. M- many of our problems in the, in the church and in our own walks with Christ arise out of a lack of understanding of the truth in Scripture and allowing our experience to override what God says to be true. Right? If, if we've seen time and time again in Scripture that God says he's good and then we see examples of that goodness, when you hit a rough valley in your life, that doesn't deny the goodness of God. Read the book of Job. Right? God is still good. We're just in the midst of a season of dealing with the reality of the sinfulness of mankind. But we allow our experience to override truth and that gets us into trouble. And in this particular case, right, to call on the name of the Lord and be saved, one must actually believe in God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible. But they must also believe in Jesus, the one whom the Father sent. And if they don't believe already, how are they going to get there? So, so Paul has said this, okay, we're going to track through this logically. Right, if we've got people that have never known the God of the Bible, how are they ever going to know if they don't believe in him? And they have to believe in his existence and who he is if they're going to follow God. Truth, truth matters. What God says about himself in the Bible matters. Revelation matters. And he says, so, so we've got a dilemma, right? What, what, what are we going to do? So he goes on to this next part. And look at what he says next in verse 14. And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Basically saying, okay, the problem is not in the fact that they don't believe. The problem is that they've never heard. How are are they to believe if they've never heard? How How can they believe without hearing? How can they hear without a preacher? That word preaching is this Greek word that actually literally means a herald. Like to, to, to make a huge announcement. And, and, and basically what, what this person was in biblical times is they would walk out into the town square after a major battle or victory for, for their, their government or their country. And they would announce the good news of what had happened. So that the people could celebrate and no longer be in fear of being conquered. But that they had celebrated and, and they had seen victory as a people. That they would announce this good news. They were a modern day newspaper. For those of you guys who don't know what a newspaper is, it's a piece of paper that comes and they drop it off in your front door. It's got news in it. Okay? I know that most of us in here, you know, are on the, the, the interwebs these days, right, finding that stuff. But it's like a modern day newspaper, Twitter, whatever you want to call it. Don't use Twitter as your primary news outlet, by the way, please. That's, that's free advice from me to you. Paul's point is this, though. No one can know about God and believe upon him 
and what he has done for the world unless someone clearly articulates and communicates that message with him. Meaning, okay, we've got a dilemma, right? Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, but there's many people who don't even believe in that God, and how are they going to believe in that God if they never hear someone? And then here's Paul's next point. Look at what he says in verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. That word sent there is the the Greek word apostelo. And, And what it means is it is someone who has been ordered to an appointed place and sent on a mission to to deliver something. It's where we get our our word apostle from in Christianity. Paul was an apostle. John was an apostle. We talk about the apostles frequently in the book of Acts. And it meant someone who has a specific mission and was sent to carry that mission out. Now, I need to pause here for a minute because what Paul is saying here is that there needs to be people within the body of Christ who know God and believe in him that are apostles and that are sent out. Meaning that there should be people amongst us all the time that have specific missions. But here's the reality, right? The question is, is that word apostle, what does that, what does that really mean for us, right? Because we need to understand that scripturally, the word apostle can be used to describe anybody, but the word apostle, with a big A, doesn't describe everyone. Right, there was a specific group of men in a specific time period who were called to build the church. Right, we see them in the upper room after the resurrection of Christ. We see them in the book of Acts as they go to plant churches. And those would be apostles, and what we would say is those are big A apostles who have been given a specific mission to spread the gospel and plant churches. But today, there are still apostles within the church, but they don't carry that same authority as the apostles in the book of Acts, right? Because the apostles in the book of Acts were, were starting churches, but they were also doing what? Writing scripture. And if someone in here is like, look, I feel called to go plant a church or be a missionary or do X, Y, Z, God may very well be calling you to do something, but he is not calling you to write more scripture. And so there is a difference. And if you see someone, by the way, because this is popular in some circles amongst Christianity of people calling themselves an apostle, you better be very careful about how they're using that term. Because an apostle had great authority in the early church, and that type of authority biblically is not supposed to be extended to everyone. And there should be very few people, if any, operating in that manner now. I would say none. And it, co- it becomes very scary when we see people operating using that term and using it to abuse the people of God and take advantage of them. And so Paul's point is this, though. Look, people that don't believe in God can't hear about God unless someone goes to them, Jew or Gentile. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, and he says, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And if you guys know anything about the book of Isaiah, Isaiah was written some probably 700 years before the life of Christ. And Isaiah is consistently throughout his, his book proclaiming about the coming of the Messiah who will save Israel. And so Paul is saying this, Isaiah promised this would happen. Isaiah would talk about our need for someone to go to the world and preach about what God has done to them. 
and that there needs to be proclamation of the gospel, the message of what Christ has done so that those who God has called can be saved. And look what he says in verses 16 and 17. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. What, what, what Paul's basically saying there is that although God had promised and proclaimed the need for people to go and share the good news, even amongst Israel, there would be people who would reject and deny that gospel message. But that does not mean that the gospel message will not go forward. And that even within Israel, there will be rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. But hearing is still necessary. The message must go forward, and response to that message is necessary. Now, I, I need us to step back for a minute and think through everything Paul has just said here as a church. Okay? Because no matter what side of the debate of God, on God's sovereignty you stand on in salvation— no matter what some of your beliefs about the extent to which Romans 9 is talking about God's sovereignty and election and predestination, or you, you have some views differing from maybe the ones that, that we were talking about extensively over the last couple weeks, the reality is, is that no matter where you stand theologically, the implications of the gospel are that we must preach the good news of Jesus Christ. I, I don't care if you're a Calvinist, an Armenian, or you have no idea what I'm talking about right now. The, 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 the unequivocal truth is that God demands that there is proclamation of the good news of what Jesus Christ has done. That is non-negotiable. That people are only going to call on Jesus for salvation if they believe he can actually save them. And no one can believe that Jesus did all this if they don't even know he exists. And they can't know he exists unless they've heard about him. And they can't hear about him unless someone who already knows him tells them about him in a sent. Now, if you would not consider yourself a Christian in here this morning, because I know we have people that, that don't, don't call themselves followers of Christ that visit us here. And, and first of all, let me say this. Thank you for being here. We're, we're glad to have you. You are, you are our guest. We would love to tell you more about Jesus. You're probably here this morning, and it's not an accident, because someone loves Jesus and wants to tell you about him. But, but I, need to, I need to get this out. What I'm about to talk about for the next probably like five minutes is family business. And so if, if, if this is not your church home, or you're thinking about making this your church home, you, you've just walked into a family meeting. And so if my tone seems harsh or direct— Show me some grace, okay? Because I'm not talking to you. But for some of you guys that have been here for some time, listen up. Because it's about to get real. All right? Guys, as a church, as professing followers of Jesus, we need to realize something. And I love you enough to tell you this. Evangelism matters dearly to God. The proclamation of the gospel matters deeply to God. As if you consider yourself a disciple of Christ here this morning, think about this for a second. You have been given and had revealed to you 
the most life-giving message in the universe. There is nothing that you could know or be told or be given that could top knowing that the God of the universe sent his only son to die in your place on the cross because of your rebellion and sin. What, what could top that? What could top knowing that Jesus did that for you and then rose again on your behalf? There's, and that because of that, you are extended grace and mercy and are reconciled to God as his son or daughter. There's nothing that could compare to that. Not getting into the university you want, not getting the job you want, not finding out you're going to be our mom and dad for the first time, not becoming engaged. There's not finding out you win the lottery. There is no information you could be given that could top the reality of God's gift to you in Christ. And knowing that message to be true and real and alive inside of you. God saved his people from their sins through Christ. And Paul is saying this, it is the responsibility as disciples of Jesus Christ to preach that message to others. Is everybody tracking with me? It's not, it's not a request, it's a responsibility. And there's a difference between both those words. The only similarity they have is that they start with the letter R. It is the responsibility of professing followers of Christ to preach the good news. And I know what some of the immediate pushback from that statement is going to be from you guys because I've heard it before. Oh, Kevin, you know, you don't, you don't understand. I'm not gifted in evangelism. You know, God says in his words that there are some people gifted in evangelism, and that's not my gift. Well, guess what, guys? Let me start with this. There are a lot of gifts talked about in the Bible. One of those gifts is mercy. I don't have the gift of mercy. Does that mean I can do whatever I want and be a jerk to anybody I want to because I don't have the gift of mercy? Is that how that works? Thank you, Derek. <laughs> Absolutely not. Right, a spiritual gift is something that God gives somebody to use to edify his church, not as an excuse not to operate within the parameters that God has asked us to follow him in. Guys, if someone has the gift of evangelism, praise God for that. I would submit this to you. A lot of you guys in here have the gift of evangelism, but you just don't use it. Just like many of you might have the gift of generosity and you don't use it. You might have the gift of service or you don't use it. And guess what suffers for it? The church, the body of Christ. Every time. The Holy Spirit gives gifts to believers. And they're to be used for the proclamation of the gospel and the edification of the church. And when we as followers, and I lump myself in there, when we as followers don't use and exercise our gifts as God has called us, guess what? We, the church struggles. Those around you who are not gifted in those areas step into that void and pick up the slack even though they may not be gifted in that area. Because of your disobedience. Because your lack of faith and trust in God. Paul is making this point abundantly clear, guys. Without gospel proclamation, there's no gospel penetration. Without people proclaiming the gospel to those who have never heard it, there's not going to be a penetration of the gospel. People aren't just going to start. I love this, right? Ever hear that famous statement, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words? 
That is so stupid. I'm sorry. That is so dumb. No one ever, you know what? Like, it is good for me as a follower of Christ to keep up with my house and, 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 and make it look nice for the sake of my neighbors. And to love them that way and to be a good example. My neighbors never look at my lawn and think, I bet that guy loves Jesus. No one ever, right, was a waitress or a waiter at a restaurant and saw that you tipped them well and thought, man, that person must be a follower of Christ. I want to know their God. Because without proclamation of the message, they don't know. And it is the duty and the responsibility of disciples of Jesus to share the good news. Now some of you guys are, some of you guys are like, I, I'm still not with you, Kevin. I'm not, I'm not there. I don't have this gift. I'm nervous or whatever else. Right? There is a biblical mandate on every believer to be sharing the gospel. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to ruin some of your all's mornings right now. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Starting in verse 17. Every Christian loves verse 17, by the way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. How many guys in Nuanas had to learn that, that verse sometime? Or some, yeah, people in the room raising your hands. But then look at this next part. Right? We forget this next part. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us what? The message of reconciliation. So here's what Paul is saying. If you're a new creation, if you're in Christ, right, here is what is true. God has been reconciling the world to himself through Christ, and he gave us the ministry of that reconciliation, meaning that word ministry means to serve, meaning we get to serve God, we get to serve our king, Jesus, in what? Proclaiming the message of reconciliation. Now, he's not done there, right? Let's keep going. Therefore, we are what? Ambassadors for Christ making his appeal through who? Us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me, let me translate this for you. If you are a professing follower of Jesus Christ, you are an ambassador for him and his kingdom here on earth. Guess what an ambassador is? It is someone who represents their king or their government 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and on a leap year, 366, in a foreign land. Meaning there's not a day off of being a Christian. There's not an hour off of being a Christian. That to be a disciple of Christ is to follow him fully 24-7. And in that following him, you are an ambassador uh, of the message of what Christ has done, which is that for our sake, 
God the Father made Jesus to be sin, even though he knew no sin, so that you and I might be declared righteous and in him. That is the declaration of God to us, church, as followers of Christ. You are an ambassador. God's not requesting that you share the gospel with people. He's telling you you need to do it. It's not a request. It's an order from your king. Let me share you guys some statistics from the Joshua Project. They're a group that is interested in, in, in evangelism and world missions. There's 16,971 separate people groups in the world. Of those 16,971, 7,042 of them are unreached people groups. Let that sink in for a minute. When I say unreached, I'm, that means less than 2% of people even know the name Jesus, much less follow him. Let me put a number with that. That's roughly 3 billion people. Of that 7,000 groups of people, 6,000 of them are in the 1040 window. Northern Africa, the Middle East, the stands, right, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, whatever the other stands are, India, China. Guys, 6,000 people groups in that region have not heard the name of Jesus. As you live in the United States, everyone has at least heard the name Jesus here. Most people at least know what a church is here. It's not that way around the world. And we are called as ambassadors to share this life-giving message to those that don't know him. To be agents of change and reconciliation. Right? Like, Here's the thing, God doesn't need us, and guess what? In his sovereignty, he chooses to use us. It's a gift. It's not a curse to be called to do this. It's a gift to share the good news of what your king and your God has done for you. This is why Paul was so crazy in the book of Acts, if you've ever read it. He's, he, like, once you get to chapter 9 in the book of Acts, Paul is everywhere. It's like, oh, Paul got beaten in this place, and he preached the gospel, and a bunch of people got saved, and he just moved on. He almost died outside this town, and then he rose again and goes to this town, and then he, you know, he's just moving from place to place, just starting churches and moving on, because there was so much to do. There were so many people that didn't believe in God and know upon him and needed to have the message of Christ proclaimed to them so they might know him. Guys, the truth about evangelism is we make it a heck of a lot harder than it needs to be. We do. Why? And I think I know why. Right, number one, we have a great, great fear of man. Right, some of you guys like, you know, I've been, I've been share, I, I'm sharing with my friend or my, my classmate or, or my neighbor or my coworker. I'm, I'm sharing the gospel. Cool, how's that looking? Well, we've been meeting for coffee and just you know, kind of building a relationship. That's awesome. Like, I'm so excited to hear that. How long have you guys been meeting? Three years. 
Three years you've been meeting with that person and you haven't talked about Jesus yet. What are you doing? Well, I, you know, I, I don't want to press them. Guys, I, let, me, let me just say something to you. The gospel is offensive to those who don't believe in it. And you're not going to be able to package that in a way to make it unoffensive. The gospel says that you and I are wicked, rebellious sinners, stiff-necked and obstinate towards God, deserving of his wrath, but that God in his mercy sent Christ to die in our place and take God's wrath on his shoulders instead of ours. That's the gospel. If someone can find a way to make that sound really beautiful and not like, you know, harsh, good, I'm, I'm all ears. But the gospel starts out with the bad news that you're wicked and separated from God. I don't know how you're going to package that and not seem offensive to somebody. The good news is that there is good news after the bad news. But if you don't ever share the bad news, you can't, you can't get to the good news. Guess what, guys? The good news of what Christ has done is such good news because of the bad news. Without the bad news, you don't need the good news. If you're not wicked, deserving of God's wrath, Christ died in vain. Guys, there are all different types, methods, ways to do evangelism, right? There's relational evangelism. There's intentional evangelism where you just walk up to people and share the gospel. There's street preaching. There's open air preaching. There's going on missions trips. And, and here's the thing that's fascinating, right? Like different groups tend to like try different types of evangelism and then like they argue amongst themselves on which method is the best. Guess what? They all work. You want to know how I know? You want to know how I know that intentional evangelism works and so does relational evangelism? Go with me to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God. For salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Guys, the gospel is powerful. Method might matter some, but it matters a whole lot less than the gospel. There will be times where relational evangelism might be the most effective form of evangelism and there will be times when specific intentional evangelism where you just walk up to a complete stranger and get into a conversation with them and share the good news of what Christ has done with them will be the most effective method of evangelism. But the message is the power, not the method. And so the question for you and I is, is, is if, if, like I said, this is a family discussion. As a church, how are we going to respond to what Paul is saying here? How, how are we going to respond to this? Because Paul's pretty clear. How, how are we going to respond? Because he's just got down telling us, you and I, as disciples of Christ, we are the vehicle for gospel proclamation. 
God chooses to use us to proclaim the good news. It, it doesn't mean you have to, to sell everything and drop out of school or quit your job and move to the 1040 window. That is not what Paul is saying here. But he is saying that this gospel proclamation can start right here, right now, in your dorm, in your workplace, with your family over the summer while you're back home. I would even say this to you. If you're concerned about the 1040 window, you live in Gainesville. There are literally hundreds upon hundreds of internationals who move here all the time to study. And there are ministries in this city and associated with the university that reach out to those internationals where, guess what? You can proclaim the gospel to them. They can get saved. And guess where they're going after they're done studying here? They're going back home. We, we live in such a privileged place, even in this country, that we don't even have to go to the nations because they come to us. All we need to do is Get to know them and share the gospel with them. Proclaim to them the good news of who God is and what he's done. To see the power of the gospel at work, we must be a people proclaiming what Jesus has done. I have people come to me all the time like, I, I, I got, my, my relationship with God is struggling. I don't feel like I see God at work. I don't know what's going on. And inevitably, one of my first questions is, is, is well, how are you serving? And are, are you in a place where you can see the gospel being proclaimed? And almost inevitably, every time, they're not. Well, no wonder you don't see the power of God at work. You're, you're, you're not proclaiming it. Most of the time, you're not even proclaiming the gospel to yourself, much less to others. How can you see the power of God at work if you aren't willing to proclaim it to others? Let me finish up with verses 18 through 21. Because Paul's, Paul's going to finish up there by just saying, you know, he's going to ask this question, what about Israel? Because that's going to inevitably, you know, because of Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 10, that's inevitably going to be the question that comes back. You know, hey, we need to be proclaiming the gospel and whatever else, but what about Israel? They're, they're not going to proclaim the gospel. They, don't, they haven't trusted in Christ. And look at what he says. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world, right? First thing that Paul's saying there is like, you know, well, did Israel hear about God? Did they hear about Jesus? Did they know about the Messiah? And he quotes for Psalm, from Psalm 19, 4, and he says, yes, they heard. They had the law and the prophets. They knew what God was gonna do. They, they've heard, they've heard the gospel. Christ went to who first? The Jews. The gospel after Christ's resurrection was preached where first? Jerusalem. Right, the, Jew, the Jews have heard. So then he's going to ask this next question. But I asked, did Israel not understand? For Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So he, he says, well, wait a minute. Okay, Israel heard, but did they not understand? Did they not understand that Jesus was the Messiah? Did they not understand that Jesus had died for their sins, that they needed to place their faith and trust in him? Did they, did they not understand that? And Paul's answer is, look, and he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 21. They knew and they understood they're actually fulfilling prophecy on Israel's rejection 
of Jesus and their jealousy towards the nations who are coming to God. Israel's rejection is actually prophesied about, and what we're seeing is actually God's promise is coming true. And then he does this, right? He quotes Isaiah 65, verses 1 and 2. He says, then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. The prophecy in Isaiah 65 is twofold. That the nations of Israel will come to know, the nations of Israel will reject the Messiah and those who do not know God and the Gentile world will come to know Jesus as God and King and they will respond to him. And yet, even in the midst of that, what is God's response to Israel? All day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Meaning, is God done with Israel? No. I read verse 1 of chapter 11. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. We'll get into that more next week. God's not done with Israel. But Israel's rejection is not an indication of God's inability to keep his promises, but actually displays that his promises are being kept. So, here's, here's what I want us to be thinking through, guys. Here's how, here's how I want us to finish up. If you are a follower of Christ in here this morning, as the people of God, do we understand what Paul is saying here? He's not requesting that we share the good news of our faith in Christ. He's demanding we share our faith. Guys, let me me just say this. There are opportunities here at this church where you can get trained and equipped to share your faith. There are books on how to share your faith. There are websites that can teach you how to share your faith. There are videos, DVDs. I would imagine if you have a VCR, there's probably VHS tapes for you. You can go to YouTube and watch and learn ways to systematically share your faith. There are campus organizations at UF dedicated to teaching you how to share your faith. There are parachurch ministries around Gainesville that are dedicated to teaching you how you can share your faith. If you are not proclaiming the good news of what God has done in your life to people that do not know Jesus, you are without excuse. I'm not going to make them for you. You live in a period and time and in a country where you are just as privileged, if not more so, than Israel was. And here's the beauty. The beauty of evangelism is this. You get to see God show up in multiple ways. One, just by simply sharing your faith, you're being obedient to God. And obedience to God will bring you joy. That's the crazy thing about being a Christian that I keep trying to kind of get across to you guys, that that 
the commands of God are not burdensome because if you know Jesus, he has changed your heart and changed your desires towards him and the things of God actually bring life and joy to you. That following Jesus is not burdensome. It's, as Jesus says, my yoke is light and my burden is easy. That following him and obeying him is life-giving, not life-stealing. And that simply by sharing your faith, it is going to bring you joy because you are being obedient to your king. Now, on top of that, guess what? If by God's grace, in sharing your faith with somebody, someone places their faith and trust in God, well, that's amazing too. Because God is, It's the glory, and we worship and rejoice that someone's eternal destiny has been changed before our eyes. And we've gotten the privilege and the honor to see Jesus save somebody. Guys, I've done some pretty fun things. I played played sports. I've experienced some really high highs in sports and athletics. I've gotten married I've moved, I've changed careers, I've had two kids. I've seen a lot of the things that this world has to offer. Things that are proclaimed that will bring us joy. I'm I'm here to tell you right now from experience, there are a few things in this life that can compare to having a front row seat to seeing Jesus save somebody. There's nothing like it. But how will they believe if they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher who will preach unless we're sent? As I told you guys earlier, we've already been sent. The moment you placed your faith in Christ, you were sent because you were an ambassador for the ministry of reconciliation. Church, here's my call to us today. Right, as, we, as we step back right, and we take communion, and we do that every week. And as I remind you guys, right, we, we take communion as an act of worship to, to worship and thank God for what he has done for us. To, to thank God that his son's flesh and blood poured out for us means that we are forgiven and accepted. That's what, that's what we're doing when we take communion. We're not practicing some act of contrition and and living in sorrow and weeping over our sin. We're confessing our sin, but then we're coming to God and worship and thankfulness because in Christ it's already been paid for and forgiven. But here's my, here's my charge to you this morning. Because this time is meant to be, in, in the design of our church service, a time of reflection for us. And so I would ask that you would do this, that you would sit there and you would pray for a minute, that if you have any sin that has gone unconfessed, that you would confess and repent of that sin. And then in repenting of that sin, you would come up and you would take communion and you would t- go back to your seat and you would sit there and you would partake of the, the bread and the juice and you would worship God. But then as, as you're done thanking Jesus for what he's done, that you would ask him to lay one person on your heart that you might share your faith with. I'm not asking you for a lot, guys. One person. You've got to know one person who doesn't know Jesus. And then that you would prayerfully 
ask God to give you the boldness to share the gospel with them. To share the good news of what God has done in your life and what he can do in theirs because of what Jesus has done. And that after you pray, that you would then share the good news with that person. Trusting that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And in believing in that, then maybe we would get the privilege of rejoicing together because God might save them. I can promise you this. If you don't preach the gospel to them, they're definitely not going to get saved. That, that I can promise you. Right, I, don't, I don't care where you sit on the theological spectrum of God's sovereignty. God has made it abundantly clear that we are called to share the gospel. Let's pray and ask God to do something magnificent. This isn't a numbers game, guys. This is about the glory of God being revealed to those who don't know him. Let's pray that he might do so. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that we are invited in to the ministry of reconciliation. And as part of that invitation, we get to, we get to share the good news of who you are with people. There's nothing, there's nothing to be ashamed of in that. There's nothing to be afraid of in that. God, if, if, if in sharing the, the gospel with somebody we, we're rejected or denied, they're not rejecting or denying us, they're rejecting or denying you. Father, forgive us. Forgive us for our fear of man and our unwillingness to do what you have asked us to do. Thank you that in Christ you've already promised us that forgiveness. And out of that thankfulness that we need not this morning be ashamed that we haven't been sharing our faith that we can instead joyfully be thankful for that mercy and share that with others. Father, give us boldness to declare the gospel. And God, I ask that you might move in a way that we may not even fully trust right now to see others saved and come to know you. And Father, may we do the work of not just proclaiming the message of the gospel, but then making disciples who are gonna make disciples so that the gospel would go forward. God, May it be said of us in our time that we were a people who loved you and declared that to the world. May we be known by nothing else but a sincere love for you and a proclamation of that love. God, thank you for your mercy. And I ask this all in Jesus' name.